Thou shalt also take one ram, and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands upon the head of the ram, and thou shalt slay the ram, and thou shalt take his blood and sprinkle it round about the altar. And thou shalt cut the ram in pieces and wash the inwards of, of him and his legs and put them upon his pieces and unto his head. And thou shalt burn the whole ram upon the altar. It is a burnt offering unto the Lord. It is a sweet savor, an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And thou shalt take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands upon the head of the ram. And thou shalt kill the ram, and take of his blood, and put it upon the tip of the right ear of Aaron, and upon the tip of the right ear of his sons, and upon the thumb of their right hand, and upon the great toe of their right foot, and sprinkle the blood upon the altar round about. Thou shalt take of the blood that is upon the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it upon Aaron and his, upon his garments and upon his sons and upon the garments of his sons with him. And he shall be hollowed and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. And thou shalt take of the ram the fat and the rump and the fat that covereth the inwards and the call above the liver and the two kidneys and the fat that is upon them and the right shoulder for it is a ram of consecration and one loaf and one cake of oiled bread, and one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. And thou shalt put all in the hands of Aaron, and in the hands of his sons, and shalt wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. And thou shalt receive them of their hands, and burn up them upon the altar for a burnt offering, for a sweet savor before the Lord. It is an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And thou shalt take of the breast of the ram of Aaron's consecration, and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be thy part. And thou shalt sanctify the breast of the wave offering, and the shoulder of the heave offering, which is waved, and which is heaved up, of the ram, and of the consecration, even of that which is for Aaron, and that which is for his sons. And it shall be Aaron's and his sons by a statute forever from the children of Israel, for it is a heave offering, and it, is, it shall be a heave offering from the children of Israel, of the sacrifice of their peace offerings, even their heave offering unto the Lord." And the holy garments of Aaron and his sons after him to be anointed therewith and to be consecrated in them. And that son that is priest in his stead shall put them on seven days when he cometh into the tabernacle of the congregation to minister in the holy place. And thou shalt take the ram of the consecration and seethe his flesh in the holy place. And Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And they shall eat those things wherewith the atonement was made to consecrate and to sanctify them. But a stranger shall not eat thereof because they are holy. And if aught of the flesh of the consecrations or of the bread remain unto the morning, then thou shalt burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. And thus shalt thou do unto Aaron and to his sons according to all these things I have commanded thee. Seven days shalt thou consecrate them. And thou shalt offer every day a bullock for a sin offering uh, and for atonement. And thou shalt cleanse the altar when thou hast made an atonement for it. And shalt shalt, thou shalt anoint it to sanctify it. Seven days thou shalt make an atonement for the altar and sanctify it. And it shall be an altar most holy. Whatsoever toucheth the altar shall be holy. Well, I'm going to talk about food, which... Go, ha, understanding what we have just read might strike you as somewhat strange. Whatever our preferences of taste, we appreciate the concept of a feast. 
and we often associate celebration with food, the best food, or maybe just our favorite food, and of course, plenty of it. For me, the food of celebration always involves lamb. Uh, now, you might wonder if that is my favorite food. I'd have to say maybe I would prefer a good ribeye steak uh, to a, a roast lamb, but the idea of celebration and lamb are so coalesced within my psyche uh, that they, it may never be displaced. In fact, I have a leg of lamb in my freezer waiting for a celebratory event. Up to this point, the consecration of the priest has consisted of elements of purification and holiness. We saw the washing. We saw the sin offering. It has answered the question, what does it take for sinful man to approach a holy God? And it takes washing. It takes a, a sacrifice for sin. The fact that the consecration ceremony does not stop at this point, though, tells us that there is more to life, more to the Christian life, than just the atonement. As important as that is, and probably important is too small a term, for it is this atonement that leads to everything else. If we would characterize the rest of the consecration ceremony, it would be a proper response to the atonement to justification, to our identity, to Christ. So everything we read in this, this passage is telling us, having been justified, having our sins been forgiven, how then ought we to live? And we may subcategorize them and this idea into the task of life, the character of life, and the duration of life. And we see this in the images used. We see the image of everything being sanctified, everything united, and all time. The totality of the sacrifice appears in the second of the three sacrifices included in this ceremony. Remember that at the beginning, three animals were to be gathered and prepared for the ritual, one bull and two rams. The first sacrifice, the sacrifice of the bull, was used for a sin offering, the blood of atonement, to deal with the pollution of sin. And some have carried this idea of atonement over into the subsequent sacrifices. And though the, I, the word atonement will appear later, uh, we're going to see that that probably has a more broad idea. The description of this sacrifice indicates that it is a different sacrifice. The first sacrifice is clearly listed as a sin offering. This is clearly stated to be a burnt offering. And yet, with all sacrifices, it also involves uh, the idea of blood and burning. Now, the ritual of the ram imitates uh, one, the one for the bull in some respects. Look at verse 15. And thou shalt take one, of the, one ram, and Aaron and his sons shall put their heads upon the head of the ram. We saw this when the bull was offered in sacrifice, and we looked at the laying on of the hands of the sin offering, and when we were looking at that, we noted that it was important what kind of offering it was, because that told us what it meant when these men put their heads upon the, the uh, hands upon the head of the sacrifice. And here also, we cannot understand uh, why they are laying hands upon his head uh, outside the broader context of the sacrifice. And you see there in the verse uh, 18 that it is a burnt offering to the Lord. And the purpose of this offering is therefore, I would suggest, not atonement for sin, but a sacrifice. 
a complete sacrifice. The idea is not that we are trying to atone for sin. It is a gift. It is a sweet-smelling savor for the Lord, a, a statement that does not appear in the sin offering. Instead, this is a sacrifice of worship. And thus, sin is not imputed here, but rather what is stated here by the laying on of hands is that the individual, here the priests, are identifying with this animal. That what happens to this animal, they are doing themselves. And the sin offering, the judgment due to the person is that which is indicated, but in this offering, it is another aspect. And you see that in the different use of the blood as well. Look at verse 16. Thou shalt slay the ram, and thou shalt take uh, his blood and sprinkle it round about the altar. Before, the Lord told Moses to put the blood upon the horns of the altar and pour the rest of it on the ground beside the altar. Here the blood is thrown, it is sprinkled upon the sides of the altar, all around the altar. Now, there's, there's a lot of uh, ways you could apply this or think about this. Uh, you know, the, uh, we talked about when the bronze altar was mentioned as a piece of furniture, how there's a possibility that the box that was uh, bronze was to go around the altar made by stones, which shows up in Exodus chapter 20. And probably this is what, is being, what the blood is being thrown upon uh, on the altar. But there is an idea of progression, maybe, in this uh, idea of the blood being thrown upon the altar rather than the immediacy of it being just poured out. And yet we see the sacrifice uh, differs in meaning and the importance of the previous sacrifice. The carcass also shares a different fate. Look at verse 17. And thou shalt cut the ram in pieces and wash the inwards of him and his legs and put them upon his pieces and unto his head. The animal is butchered and washed. This washing, of course, didn't show up last time. This animal is washed, and you may indica- it may indicate, and I think it does, uh, a connection again between the priest who was washed and the animal. There's an identif- identification there, and I want to focus more on this in a moment. And next, Moses uses the whole of the animal. Look at verse 18. And thou shalt burn the whole ram upon the altar. It is a burnt offering unto the Lord, a sweet savor, an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Unlike the sin offering, where part was burned on the altar and part was burned outside the camp, Moses burns the entire ram upon the altar. Something different is being spoken of, or being represented in the sacrifice. You don't see an indication that part of the offering is so defiled that it must be burned outside the camp. The whole animal is offered to the Lord. More, the whole thing is pleasing to the Lord. I think the commentator, John Mackay, uh, properly expresses the purpose and meaning of the sacrifice when he writes, one of the main ideas conveyed by this offering is that of total dedication to the Lord. The priests, having their sin dealt with, now offer themselves totally to the Lord. The whole burnt offering appears outside the context, uh, within the context of the consecration. It shows us the uh, it shows the way that Israel, uh, it, when you look at the burnt offering in other contexts, it is uh, Israel offers the burnt offerings. You'll see this in uh, Leviticus. 
And when Israel offers the burnt offering, they are uh, doing it as an act of worship. It's not something that is done to take care of their sin. It is the way that Israel expresses their devotion to the Lord. In the consecration of the priest, the sacrifice takes a special meaning as the priests have laid their hands upon the head of the animal, as they have identified with the animal, as the animal is washed. What they are saying is, as this animal is offered wholly unto the Lord, so I am offering myself wholly unto the Lord. My entire life is now dedicated to the work of the priesthood into which I am entering this day. It signifies something already stated by God. He has reserved the Levites to themselves, and among the Levites he has chosen the family of Aaron as the priestly line. Thus the sacrifice indicates their total devotion to the Lord. They have nothing else to do but the service of the Lord. And I think this may express this may explain the progressive nature of the sprinkling around the altar. That it is not just a one-time event for the priests. It's not a one and done thing. Their entire life is a sacrifice to God. As you think about this, it is easy for us to make application to our own lives, where we have only to read Paul's letter to the church at Rome in Romans 12, 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. You cannot read this, this, this statement without truly identifying this sacrifice in the priesthood. It comes after the sin offering. And therefore, Paul begins, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, what God has already done for us, the, the substance of the first 11 chapters of his letter to the church at Rome. This is how you ought to live in light of what you have received from God. In the New Testament, we don't sacrifice in offerings, though. It is the first 11 chapters of Christ's sacrifice for us upon which this sacrifice is to be made. Even though we don't sacrifice sin offerings, for Jesus has made full atonement, yet we still have sacrifice in our doctrine. We read of it this morning as we read at the end of Hebrews 13 and the, his statements about sacrifice. And our sacrifice involves ourselves. We present not a ram, but our own self. And as the high priest was presented at the door of the sanctuary, so we present ourselves before the presence of God to do with as he sees fit. And I don't think Paul, by saying present your body, is merely uh, thinking about the physical, although uh, the idea of obedience is certainly here involved, but the totality of our being, what we do, what we think, what we feel, what we say. Instead of death in the sacrifice, we are a living sacrifice. It is a whole burnt offering, a, a living totally unto the Lord, to the glory of the name of Christ. Nothing is to be reserved. No part is to be left off the altar. We are set apart to God. We are holy, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. The idea of acceptability here follows that idea of the sweet-smelling savor uh, uh, that was a part of the burnt offering. It is an outworking of our identity. For that is how the verse begins, considering what God has already done for you, considering your identity in Christ, which he has gone on for the last 11 chapters, you are to offer yourself as pleasing before God. 
God has made you pleasing in your person through Christ, and therefore you are to be pleasing in your actions, in your obedience. And Paul continues, concludes by saying, this is our rational worship, our service, our sacrifice. This is the logical response to what God has done to, for us. I hope I'm not telling you anything new as good Christian people. You've appreciated Romans uh, 12 before. We often fail at devoting our whole selves to the service of Christ. It's that whole self thing that kind of slips us all up. Because we reserve parts of ourselves. We don't want to put all of us on the altar. We hide desires and opinions and thoughts and feelings and inner monologues from the sanctifying gaze of the Lord. We cannot say honestly with the psalmist, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the ways everlasting. Such a prayer scares us, and yet that is the prayer that God calls us to make. For all of us, the totality of us, ought to be sac sacrificed and offered to him. And secondly, we see everything united to him. As the priest devoted his entire life to the worship of the Lord, so he understood his union with the Lord and with all those similarly devoted. And that appears in this final sacrifice in the ritual of consecration. We find this lesson taught in the blood applied in the meal eaten. The sacrifice, uh, this sacrifice, the last sacrifice, begins again with the same activity. Look at verse 19. And thou shalt take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands upon the head of the ram. Three times the, the Aaron and his sons are put to their heads upon the ram, and I would suggest to you three times that very act has a core of meaning the same, but different applications. In all three times, Aaron and his sons are identifying with the ram, but in different ways, I would say to you. In the first sacrifice, they are identifying with this sacrifice in terms of this bull is going to suffer the death my sins deserved, because it's a sin offering. The second sacrifice, they're saying, what happens to this ram is something that I want and I participate in, that I am offering myself to God to do with as he sees fit. In this sacrifice, again, he is associating with this animal. And perhaps uh, that this is saying that I am associating with this animal for uh, I am accepting everything that this sacrifice is saying about who I am. You see also a change in the use of the blood. Look at verse 20. And thou shalt kill the animal and take of the blood and put it upon the tip of the right ear of Aaron and upon the tip of the right ear of his sons and upon the thumb of their right hand and upon their great toe of their right foot and sprinkle the blood upon the altar round about. Now some of this, although the very end of this verse, we understand it's, it showed up in the last sacrifice, but the uh, previous part is a little strange. Again, uh, first the blood is used to mark the priest. This ritual also appears in the cleansing of lepers in Leviticus 14, and I think that helps us unpack this. This may indicate uh, not necessarily a future cleansing of the priest, uh, but since the leper uh, uses this right to re-enter the covenant community, this may mark the priests out as a part of the community of priests. 
Think about it in kind of stages. The leper was cast out. They were outside the camp. They couldn't come in the camp. They were not a part of the community of God. But being cleansed, they are to re-enter the community of the people of God. And so this ritual, by putting this blood on these, these areas, says this person is able to draw nearer to God than he used to be able to because he was outside the camp. And so also, if you think about it in concentric circles, the priesthood, by having this marker placed upon them, is revealing their union with Christ, union with the community of priests. The right side is used of the ear, the thumb, and the big toe to represent the side of power. That is the side that most people uh, are right-handed. Now, why the ear, the thumb, and the big toe? Commentators like to say a lot about that. There's, there's some that say you know, they are sanctified in what they hear, what they do with their hands, and where they go with their feet. I'm a little less uh, convinced of that. I think it's basically head to toe and everywhere in between. The totality of the individual is brought into this covenant uh, relationship, able to draw near, able to be a part of this new uh, community. Some of the blood is again thrown and sprinkled upon the altar, uh, but the rest of the blood is also used in a different way. Look at verse 21. And thou shalt take of the blood that is upon the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it upon Aaron and upon his garments and upon his sons and upon his sons' garments with him, and he shall be hollowed in his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. The blood is used along with the anointing oil to sprinkle the priest wearing the regalia. And it's no, interesting to note, probably, that the word sprinkling here is different from the wor word used in verse 20. In the verse 20, it, the blood is thrown against the altar of, uh, the blood is thrown against the altar around it. And in this case, it is sprinkled upon them. Whether there's, you know, a lot of distinction here or whether this is stylistic, is, I'll leave up to your uh, ideas. But here, uh, the blood and the anointing oil is used uh, to sprinkle the priest and his garments. A sacrifice, again, uh, signals the relationship between the Lord and the priest. Uh, here, the blood sanctifies the priest to his office. Now, you know, indulge me for a second, if you will, and to imagine what this would look like. It doesn't really look like... It, you would probably find this a little creepy, being sprinkled with blood in your total regalia. Everything, you know, you've already been anointed. That's already happened. You've already been put on this clothes. You've already had your sin uh, taken care of. You already had blood smeared on your ear, your thumb, and your big toe. And now he takes anointing oil and blood and sprinkles your, your brand new clothes. Your brand new clothes is now dotted with oil and blood. And yet this is ind indicative of what the totality of your sanctification, what the totality of your consecration looks like. There's something about every droplet, every spot on that garment that you wear from now on reflects that, you, that no human has enabled these garments to do this specific task. That this ritual, this activity, this office that you bear, your ability to draw near to God is of His grace and His grace alone. The wave offering has often uh, fascinated me. I have a strange fascination. Maybe you'd share it too because it just seems to me to be a really weird thing. Look at verses 22 through 25. And thou shalt take of the wrap 
uh, of the ram, the fat and the rump, and the fat that covereth the inwards, and the coal and the, of the, above the liver, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is upon them, and the right shoulder, for it is a ram of consecration. And of one loaf of bread, and one cake of boiled bread, and one wafer out of the basket of the unleavened bread that is before the Lord. And thou shalt put all in the hands of Aaron, and in the hands of his son, and shalt offer, wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. Thou shalt receive them of their hands and burn them upon the altar for a burnt offering, for a sweet savor before the Lord. It is an offering by fire unto the Lord. This part of the wave offering reserves uh, a part uh, for uh, destruction. The hind part of the ram and the entrails used for divination uh, by other peoples are to be burned. Now, we, we thought about this. We saw this earlier in the sin offering when these uh, parts of the inward uh, uh, organs were to be destroyed. We notice also uh, the mention of hands here. There to be, these things are to be put into the hands of Aaron and his sons, actually the word is palms, and to be received from the hands of Aaron and his palms. And we saw last week that the phrase to fill the hands uh, was the word that was, that was the phrase, the idiom, that was translated to ordain. And so the mention of hands here may indicate that this act uh, completes the requirement to ordain the Aaron and his sons. But I want us to think about this, this half of this offering and the second half of the wave offering that happens next. Look at verse 26. And thou shalt take of the breast of the ram of Aaron's consecration and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be thy part. And thou shalt sanctify the breast of the wave offering and the shoulder of the heave offering which is waved and which is heaved up and the ram of the consecration, even that which is for Aaron, and that of that which is for his sons. And it shall be Aaron's and his sons by statute forever from the children of Israel, for it is a heave offering. It shall be a heave offering from the children of Israel of the sacrifice of their peace offerings, even their heave offering unto the Lord. We have here this, the idea of what this offering is. If the first offering is a sin offering and the second offering is a whole burnt offering, then this offering is probably similar to the peace offering of the Israelites. So what's happening here? What's the, the visual that is being represented by this ram? Half of the ram is burnt on the altar, maybe more than half the ram if you count up all the pieces, and half is eaten by the priests. I suggest that this represents table fellowship between the Lord and the priests. The Lord gets half, it's burned in the altar, and the priests get half to be eaten. And this also appears in the peace offerings that Israel brings. And Israel was commanded by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 12 to eat before the Lord. There is a, an idea that as part of their covenant community, as part of their covenant with the Lord, they have access to their God and they have fellowship with their God. The holy nature of this meal appears in its consumption. Look at verse 31, and thou shalt take the ram of the consecration and see the, his flesh in a holy place. And Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the basket that is in the bread that is in the basket by the door of the con tabernacle of the congregation. And they shall eat those things wherewith the atonement was made, and to consecrate, to sanctify them. But a stranger shall not eat thereof, because they are holy. And the meat is to be boiled in a holy place, not the holy place. 
the word here is different. It doesn't mean the holy place, the way we think about it as the tabernacle, uh, the sanctuary, the place before the most holy place. Uh, that would be strange, number one, because there's no piece of furniture there uh, that would that be able to do this work. Uh, and that's not what the text says. So they are to uh, prepare the meal in a different place, but they are to eat this meal in a very specific place. They are to eat it right before the sanctuary, right in front of uh, the tabernacle. The effect of this eating also consecrates and ordains them and sets them apart for their office. No one else may eat of it. The sanctity of this food requires even its destruction if any is left over. Look at verse 34. And if aught of the flesh of the, of the consecrations or of the bread remain until morning, then thou shalt burn it, the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. This is a meal that the priests eat. It's a meal that is shared with the Lord. It is a meal that is to be eaten specifically before the tabernacle, before the door of the consecration. It's a meal that is to be eaten before the presence of the Lord. Is there anything this reminds you of? We have seen elsewhere that Old Testament rituals inform our understanding of New Testament sacraments, even while they may not arise to the level of analogs or New Testament replacement of Old Testament rituals. We know, for example, that baptism in the New Testament represents and replaces circumcision in the Old, and the Lord's Supper in the New Testament replaces Passover. And yet, these ideas are not the only elements that inform our understanding of New Testament sacraments and truth and truths. The meal here educates us about elements in our observance of the Lord's Supper. It indicates the fellowship that the Lord has with his people. Now surely the sacrifice of Christ is not eaten between the Lord and his people, uh, yet uh, but that wouldn't make any sense. However, the idea of table fellowship between God and his people appears strongly in the supper, because especially if you recognize that in Jesus, God is there with his disciples, present with them. The supper identifies us as a kingdom of priests, just as it did uh, with the previous supper. The priestly meal takes place before the sanctuary in the presence of the Lord, and certainly the presence of the Lord in the supper has been has pastored uh, Christians about what it means, but it has been ever denied. At the heart of this ritual is fellowship, being in the favorable presence of God. We often use the presence of the Lord in a wrong way or in a, an imperfect way. This idea of the favorable presence of the Lord, our eating before the tabernacle, says something to the priest about how they are to live their lives, what they are to be and to do. And we often use the presence of the Lord as a threat to encourage obedience. God is watching you, so you better behave. I would, try, I would make a, a reference to Elf in the Shelf here, but I think that that's even too close to being sacrilegious. This meal teaches us that for Christians, the idea of God's displeasure should not preoccupy us as much as God's pleasure and fellowship ought to. We ought to behave because God has allowed us to enter into his sanctuary.
We ought to serve and to sanctify ourselves because we have such a gracious gift. We ought to consider that the Lord who loved us, who atoned for us, who desires our presence, who has accepted us through the atonement of Christ, offers us his fellowship. And shall we not honor him by striving to act in accordance to that fellowship? Striving to act according to that which we have been given, shall we not go to his dinner living every moment in a worthy manner? Next week, as I was reflecting up here, we'll be putting in the bulletin that the week following, we will be uh, observing the Lord's Supper and to be in preparation for that. We think about that as we approach the Lord's the table of the Lord. Well, if you think about it in the more grand sense, the entirety of our life is to be uh, worked and lived in preparation for that meal. To be lived in preparation for the greater of the meals when we will eat in the presence of God the wedding feast of the Lamb. Remember that that meal signifies our union not just with Christ but with one another. So we see all sacrificed and all united, but finally, I want us to look at all the time. The ceremony of consecration may have lasted at most a week, but the results lasted a lifetime. Here we see the principle of the hereditary priesthood and the perpetual altar. There is a sadness to the instructions sandwiched into the instructions regarding the meal. Look at verses 29 and 30. And the holy garments of Aaron and his, shall be his sons after him, to be consecrated therein and to be, and to be consecrated in them. And that son that is priest in his stead shall put them on seven days when he cometh into the tabernacle of the congregation to minister in the holy place. There's a sadness to this instruction because the sadness is the reality of death. Aaron will not continue to be high priest forever. Aaron's going to die. His sons are going to die. And they would be replaced by the generations that would follow. And yet for their impending deaths, their priesthood would continue. The priesthood, the Levitical and Aaronic priesthood, would continue from year to year, from generation to generation, regularly until the superior priest would appear. And this deficiency in the Aaronic priesthood appears in the superior priest in Hebrews. As an aside, have you noticed how frequently I have gone to Hebrews as we have been going through the tabernacle and throughout the book of Exodus? You might even be uh, convinced in thinking that I'm preaching not from the book of Exodus, but from the book of Hebrews. And I hope you realize by doing this how important the book of Hebrews is to us, how it makes the Old Testament Christian scriptures. The book of Hebrews basically says, uh, and it's kind of real weird irony, because the book of Hebrews is written to say that Christ is better than everything uh, that was apparent in the Old Testament. And yet, by that, the book of Hebrews is saying, hey, uh, you Christian, everything in the Old Testament is Christian scripture and is important for you. The author of Hebrews comments about this deficiency in the hereditary priesthood that needed someone better. In Hebrews 7, we read, and they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he is able also to save them 
to the uttermost that come to God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. One of the arguments of the author of Hebrews in this statement is that Christ is the mediator of a better priesthood because while the previous priest died, he never died. Their priestly office ceased upon their death. Christ is priest forever. And he makes this further point, not only is Christ uh, sacrifice better because it is a sacrifice of himself and his blood, but he is able to save to the othermost because he continues to save. You could say that one of the previous priests might have faltered because he passed away. His priesthood ceased, but Christ as a forever priest saves to the uttermost. There can be no replacement of him, nor will there ever be. Just as the priesthood lasts generation to generation, the altar also shares that character. Verse 35, And thou shalt do uh, unto Aaron and to his sons according to these things which I have commanded thee seven days, shalt thou consecrate them. And thou shalt offer every day a bullock for a sin offering for atonement, and thou shalt cleanse the altar when thou hast made atonement for it, and thou shalt anoint it to sanctify it. Seven days shalt thou make an atonement for the altar and sanctify it, and it shall be an altar most holy. Whatsoever toucheth the altar shall be holy." Interesting, every day there's a sin offering for the altar. Now, I don't know if this is, the enti- this is to go on perpetually or just for the seven days, probably just the seven days of the consecration of Aaron the priest and the, the tabernacle. But for the seven days, every day, one of the sacrifices is to be a sin offering for the altar. What did the altar do wrong? The altar didn't do anything wrong. It's a sin offering because it reflects what's going to be a part of this this altar. It reflects the purification of this altar, the holiness of the altar, how it is to be set apart uh, for the work that it is going to be doing. In a way, it's setting it apart for the work of taking the sins of the people. Every morning for seven days. So important is the work of sanctifying the altar that even the day of rest must be interrupted to do the work of sanctifying, anointing, and sacrifice. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. I don't have to ask you to guess where that quote came from because we read it already this morning. It comes from Hebrews. The altar that was sanctified by seven days of sin offering, we have a better altar than it. Our better altar is the one who sanctified himself for his people. Our better altar was one who offered a better sacrifice. Our better altar is also the better sacrifice for sin. For my friend, there is no sacrifice that can deal with sin but that which Christ has offered. He is God-made man the sacrifice of infinite worth. He lived a sinless life, a sacrifice pure and spotless. He died upon the cross, taking the penalty our sins deserve. He rose from the grave, pointing, proving that the wrath of God due to sin was fully satisfied. And yet the question you must face is twofold. Why do you need Jesus? Do you understand what sin is? that you truly deserve nothing but death and hell, but Jesus took it on your behalf. 
And secondly, do you accept what Christ has done? Do you believe that what he did, he did for you? Do you repent of your sin and turn away from it to follow Jesus? Christian, we have a better altar. We have a better, a permanent high priest. We eat of a better sanctified bread. We eat of a better sanctified uh, uh, meat. We have a better intercessor. All of our lives, 24 hours of every single one, until the day we die, we have been made priests before our Savior, before our God. And we are to live that way. The idea that all of our lives, all every moment of our lives, all of our time is, given, is to be given to God is one that is perilously uh, shaky in our days. Previously, people looked at life as a, con- uh, as a continual struggle. All time was precious and should be used profitably. But we fa- thankfully live in days in a culture where we uh, often assume the basic necessities. And that is, that is a, such a wonderful blessing, but we also have to recognize it's a temptation as well. For in this, we begin to assume ownership of time. That some time is our own and we begrudge uh, when God makes requirements of it. What a notion. I'll leave to your reading the screw tape letters, letter 21 uh, of C.S. Lewis's, ma- Lewis's masterful deliverance on this incredible assumption. The truth is that we owe all of our time to the service of the Lord. But that doesn't mean that we are to burn ourselves out in what we vainly imagine as Christian service. For after all, what does God give us but a day of rest? God's concern for our rest in spiritual, emotional, mental, and physical ways ought to remind us that God cares for our time, and part of our time he segregates to rest. What does this mean? the, The screw tape letters, Lewis pointedly points out that when God makes demands of our time, we ought to give of it willingly. He uses this example. If God came down and said, I need you to help me out, we saw Jesus come to us and, said, and he said, I need you to help me out. I need you to do something. Would we not just jump at the opportunity? And we would probably be disappointed if all that he wanted us to do was to sit for an hour and to listen to someone gripe in our ear. If he said, all right, I want you to sit down, listen to this person yak at you for an hour and to show kindness and consideration for them. We would probably say, Lord, isn't there something better, stronger, greater for me to do? We'd probably be rather disappointed, but oftentimes that is exactly what God calls us to do. To listen when we are interrupted, to pay attention, to speak a word in due season. What happens to us? Well, I'll be the first to put my hand up to this. I, uh, you know, it's like, ah, got to do this now. Not when you guys call, of course, when other things happen. God calls, tells us that his, our time is his, and we are to live in that way. Let's pray together. Lord, may our hearts be devoted to you, that we may faithfully serve you all of our days. Remind us that you fellowship with us, that you love us, And may that encourage us to serve you in a worthy manner. May we reserve no part 
of ourselves from obedience. But may we sacrifice all for your sake. Hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.